Hey guys, and welcome to the Moms and Murder Podcast, a true crime podcast featuring myself, Mandy, and my dear friend, Melissa. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Mandy. How are you? I'm doing wonderful. How are you? I'm doing really good as well. Um, I was thinking, Mandy, maybe this week we could start off with a bit of a vocal warm-up if you're game for it. Is that because I just started the episode and then said, why is my voice cracking? I need to drink some water. Or is that something you already planned on doing? It was something I just like, it's been on my mind a lot. So um, first I thought we could start with red leather, yellow leather, red leather, yellow leather, leather. See, I can't even do it. Can you do that? Red leather, yellow leather, red leather, yellow leather. You did it. Great. Okay. And then the other one I was thinking is when, whenever, when, whenever. (laughs) (laughs) When, whenever, when, whenever. <laughs> See, we're capable of doing it, but but some of us, points to self, um, still get them mixed up. And it's probably still going to happen, but I promise it's not for a lack of trying. I've really looked up when to use. See, I don't even know if I did that We right. both have. We both have. Yeah. We genuinely both have looked it up. And we've addressed this numerous times and have said, like, we're really sorry. And we've also come to figure out that it is a regional thing. Um, I've had several people tell me that, no, it really is something that they hear in certain places, like the southeast, I guess. I guess it's a Florida person thing. <laughs> I think there's a few other places that um, use whenever incorrectly. But I'm so sorry. And I'm so sorry if you are so offended. Yeah, it happens. But but we get that. That's our number one. I think that's our number one email. It's not going to get better. And I don't mean that in a mean way. But like, I promise we are trying, but we are trying. It's like my dad saying Walmarts. He is never not going to put a plural S on Walmart. It's just never going to happen. And I've come to accept it and love him for who he is as a person, which is somebody who also says Monroe instead of Monroe. So it's just a thing. (laughs) Yeah. And can I just say one other thing? Oh, please. Uh, now, ha- this is half your show. <laughs> now, <laughs> now I'm just getting in my feelings. But um, yeah, guys, so when you guys send emails to us, um, we actually read them. Like me or Melissa actually reads them. So don't be so mean to us. Sometimes we get emails and I'm like, wow, I feel like this person doesn't know that we are actually reading this. Right. <laughs> and like, because they're so like directly hurtful to us. And so obviously that just is comes with the territory of having um, a sure. podcast, you know, and having a platform where people can just reach out to you through email. But um, yes, me and Melissa personally read every email that it's we get. Just so, it's yeah. just us. It's just us. Yeah. So um, yeah, you may have guessed by this intro that we had a little bit of a rough email week. <laughs> But you know what? On and to counter that, because we do get so many nice emails, and this week I think especially we had so many kind emails, like new listeners, all kinds of stuff. And so even if you're not writing us, if you have a podcast that you enjoy, it's so nice as people who podcast. I will not call us podcasters, but as people who podcast, it's so nice to get a nice little note that just you know it's something, and it does counter those ones that are like, "Hey, you're an idiot." Um, Yeah. And those words have been used, but you know, I've said them about myself. So here we are. But anyway, this is all in good fun, but just know we're trying. And that's all I can say about that. I think, I think we've said it. I think that I think we've said, said too much. <laughs> all right. So we'll get into the episode this week. When it comes to risk and thrill seeking, I have some pretty hard limits when it comes to what I'm willing to try and what I'm willing to do. It may come as a surprise to some of our listeners, but only one of us has been skydiving, and it wasn't me. (laughs) I guess jumping out of planes is one of my hard limits. 
But in all seriousness, I'm really not much of an adrenaline junkie, and there's a lot of things people do for fun that I really would just never do because those things genuinely scare me. In fact, I get anxious over quite a bit. But if I'm being candid here, the one thing that gives me the most anxiety is water, and I'm specifically talking about big water, like oceans and rivers and waterfalls. But at the same time, being near the water and participating in water activities is also one of my most favorite things to do. So I'm often just putting myself directly in these situations that have this potential to really make me anxious and kind of freak out a little bit. Um, But I compromise by enjoying the water from a safe distance and being overly cautious with water safety for myself and my kids, of course. But water activities for me that happen above the water are good. Water activities that happen beneath the surface, maybe not so good. So that means no scuba diving for me. Um, But I think, Melissa, that is something that you actually have done as well. (laughs) I went scuba diving in my uncle's pool whenever I was younger, but I had a lung surgery and like the only notes the doctor gave me leaving was like, by the way, you can't scuba dive. I was like, okay. And I walked out and I have no idea if my lung would explode. I don't know if I would develop a second lung. I don't know what would happen. (laughs) So I'm just (laughs) avoiding it. Yeah, probably a good idea. Uh, So now that you know, though, that I'm so scared of large bodies of water and especially being submerged in water, imagine my horror when I learned about this week's story in which a woman was last seen alive when she boarded a submarine with an entrepreneur named Peter Madsen on August the 10th, 2017. Now, if you're not from Denmark, there's a pretty good chance that you don't have any idea who Peter Madsen is. But if you are from Denmark, then you just may have heard the name before. Peter was somewhat of a celebrity with a cult-like following who was frequently in the spotlight, being featured in television and magazine reports about his life. What led to his fame was the fact that he launched the largest self-built submarine ever made in May of 2008. So this self-made submarine was called the UC-3 Nautilus, a la 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, and it was 56 feet long and weighed over 40 tons. I'm sorry to say I don't want – I wouldn't get on anything self-made that was meant to be like a vehicle. I'm not getting in a self-made car. I'm not getting on a self-made plane. I'm not getting in a self-made boat. I'm definitely not getting in a self-made submarine. The way my son spent weeks saying – trying to figure out how I could get a pilot's license, I never requested getting one, but he (laughs) kept looking for it and wanted my husband to build a plane like a Cessna for me to fly. I was like (laughs) – Oh, yeah. No big deal. (laughs) Are you trying to have me killed? There was just no other reason for it. Yeah. So – I'm with you. (laughs) Yeah. And and that's just a lot to even take on. Can you imagine just saying to yourself, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to – Take on this huge project of building a submarine. No. no. <laughs> where, where do you even start? That's just – maybe I'm just not smart enough for that kind of thing. I don't know where you even begin. So prior to inventing this massive submarine, Peter was really no one extraordinary. Peter's parents had a bit of an age gap love when Peter was born in 1971. His father, Carl, was 30 years older than his mom, Annie, who had three sons from two previous marriages. Carl wasn't really the nicest guy, to put it bluntly. He never physically disciplined Peter, but he did beat his stepsons. We're unsure whether or not he physically abused his wife, but nevertheless, they got divorced when Peter was six. Peter lived with his father in a small town outside of Copenhagen while his mom and half-brothers moved out. 
During Peter's childhood, his dad Carl got him interested in rockets after he had told him about a Nazi aerospace engineer who came to the U.S. and helped develop Apollo missions. At school, Peter was pretty nerdy by stereotypical standards. He challenged his science teachers, and he spent his free time building rockets. During his teen years, Peter participated in the Danish Amateur Rocket Club, but eventually he was kicked out because he wanted to use fuels that the other group members considered unsafe. When Peter was 18, his dad died, and for the next few years, Peter kind of aimlessly wandered through life. He started attending college for engineering, but bounced around other fields of interest such as welding and refrigeration before he eventually dropped out of all of them and decided he knew enough to build submarines and rockets himself. So after building the UC-3 Nautilus that earned him a place in the limelight, Peter moved on to space exploration. He wanted to, quote, find ways to travel to worlds beyond the well-known, end quote. He partnered with an architect named Kristen von Bengsten, a former NASA contractor. They were going to work together with the goal of launching a manned rocket into space. They formed Copenhagen Suborbitals, which was a collective of amateur rocket makers funded by donations. In 2011, they launched a 30-foot homemade rocket five miles into the sky over the Baltic Sea. At some point, Peter married this woman, and we're going to call her Betty because we don't have any sources that actually give her real name. So according to Betty, Peter was into some very specific things, and one of these things was sadomasochism. Peter was pretty out in the open about his lifestyle, and according to Betty, he openly talked about attending these fetish parties without her. Another person who knew Peter described him as having two sides, one that was well-spoken and charismatic, and another that was a bit darker. She said he was, quote, funny, manipulative, serious, and scary, end quote, which that's, that's a lot scary. of person. Yeah. That's a lot of that's person. That's scary just to read those, just those four words to describe a person together. It's like, okay, I I know exactly what kind of guy this was. Bouncing back and forth, right? Like total yes. extremes of uh, different things. Peter didn't have any type of criminal background or anything to suggest that he was anything more than this odd guy who liked science and mechanical things. But in 2014, Copenhagen's suborbitals fell apart, and rumor has it that it was because of Peter's behavior that actually led to disagreements with Christian and the rest of the team. Peter then went on to create another organization, Rocket Madsen Space Laboratory, which was directly in competition with his former partners. But the volunteers that worked with Peter had conflicting opinions about him. Some people felt that Peter was a nice, generous guy, and they really loved his sense of community that the shop they were working in gave them. Others, however, had very different things to say about him. One person said that Peter had these drastic swings between euphoria and rage, and that Peter could go from being supportive and helpful to suddenly being pensive and sarcastic. Another volunteer said that if Peter wasn't happy, he acted like a child who had just dropped an ice cream cone. Peter allegedly threw things like hammers, screwdrivers, and other tools whenever he was going into these rage fits. Wow. Yeah. It was in early 2017 when Peter was contacted by a journalist named Kim Wall, who was looking to do a story on the people who built these rockets. Kim had just recently moved to the Copenhagen area with her boyfriend Ole, a Danish designer. And when they were on a walk one day, they stumbled on some old rocket building workshops and those old rocket building workshops were Copenhagen Suborbitals and Rocket Madsen Space Laboratory. 
Kim, who was an incredibly talented and highly respected journalist, saw the potential for a great story, and she reached out to several publications hoping to secure an assignment to write about them. It's common in the journalism world for journalists to actually start working on a story before getting officially hired to work on it, and so that's exactly what Kim did in this case. She interviewed one of the builders at Suborbitals and learned that one of the original co-owners, Peter, had started his own workshop, Rocket Madsen, after they had this falling out. So Kim then reached out to the owner of Rocket Madsen Space Laboratory, which of course was Peter Madsen. After tracking Peter down and requesting this interview with him, Peter said no, which is very anticlimactic <laughs> because she has put in so much effort into kind of finding this guy and really wants to get started on this story and have his interview. But Kim took it in stride. As I said, she was very well versed in the field of journalism and she just moved on. She had traveled the world as a journalist reporting for huge publications such as The Guardian, The New York Times, Time Magazine, South China Morning Post, Vice, and more. In the short time that she had been a reporter, she had traveled around the world to write stories, including a trip to Hawaii to write about practitioners of voodoo, a trip to Sri Lanka to document tourism on the former Civil War battlefields, and a trip to Cuba to follow the story about those involved in the underground network that's responsible for delivering TV shows and internet culture to the country. So Kim loved these types of topics, which she called, quote, the undercurrents of rebellion, and she loved to write about them. Kim had grown up in Sweden with her brother in a close-knit community that was just across the street that divides Denmark from Sweden. She had always been highly ambitious and had a healthy curiosity that led her to discovering amazing stories from across the globe. She had a warm and bubbly personality but was very well-traveled and intellectual, and she was the type of person you could spend hours just chatting with, which made her perfect for journalism, and she really excelled at it. One of Kim's classmates said that, quote, what made her journalistic abilities so exceptional was that she looked for quirky stories, but with a bigger narrative. She reported them deeply. She never made a spectacle of the characters. Her reporting was rock solid, end quote. Kim sounds like she was really just genuinely interested in the people and the stories that they had to share. And uh, this was really just a passion of hers. Yeah. In August of that year, several months after Kim had approached Peter Madsen about doing this interview with him, the interview had been all but put out of her mind, and she was now focused on her next big adventure. Kim and her boyfriend, Olay, were preparing to move to China in just a few days, and they were setting up this farewell get-together with friends when, out of the blue, Peter Madsen called. He said that he was now available for that interview that Kim had been wanting. Although Kim had resigned to the fact that she wouldn't be getting this interview with Peter, she'd still been working on the story for months. So this change of heart on Peter's part was certainly a welcome surprise. So Kim agreed to meet Peter right away at his workshop, which really wasn't very far from where she lived. But Kim wasn't gone for long. She returned 30 minutes later, and she was excitedly telling her boyfriend Olay that Peter actually invited her to come out on his famous submarine. Kim thought that this would be a fantastic opportunity for her story, and so she decided to go with Peter on the submarine instead of this going-away party that they had planned on going to that night. She asked Olay if he wanted to come along, and he really wanted to, but since they had invited guests, he felt like he had to stay. The couple kissed goodbye, and Kim said she'd be back in just a few hours. Kim arrived at the submarine, where dozens of people watched and snapped photos as they set sail. At about 7 that evening, Kim sent a picture of the Nautilus to Olay, and then she boarded the submarine. 
She sent more photos, one of windmills in the water and another photo of her at the steering wheel. Before the ship was submerged, Kim and Peter stood on the deck waving to people on shore. At 8.16 p.m., Kim sent a text to Olay that would end up being incredibly eerie. It said, quote, I'm still alive, by the way, but going down now. I love you. He brought coffee and cookies, though, end quote. Olay replied to Kim's text and sent several other texts, but never heard back from Kim again. Later that night, Olay grew increasingly worried when Kim did not respond to his messages or return home when he expected her to. He waited until around 1.45 a.m. before deciding to call the armed forces and the police who initiated a huge rescue operation using helicopters and ships. Before long, they learned that the submarine had been spotted by a merchant ship, but Peter didn't have any satellite tracking, and so authorities were unable to contact him. At 11.25 p.m., Peter sent his wife Betty a text that said, quote, I'm on a little adventure with Nautilus. Feeling good. Sailing in sea view and moonlight. Do not dive. Hugs and hugs for the missus, end quote, followed up with a bunch of emojis. And so Peter never showed up at home that night. And we have so many more details to get into with this story after a quick break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. Kids do not respect sleep. I mean, I get it. When I was a kid, I was all about staying up late and I could do that and recover pretty quickly. As an adult, staying up late means I'm counting the hours I'm able to sleep and worrying that the sleep I get just won't be enough. Thanks to my sleep number bed, I'm getting more quality sleep than ever before. And unlike when I was a kid, I can't wait to sleep in my amazing sleep number bed. I've learned that I'm not a productive person at nighttime. In fact, I'm now focused on going to bed at a more reasonable time and waking up early so I can get all kinds of things done. Sometimes I can get more done in the two hours before my family wakes up than I can in the rest of the day. So lately I've been depending on these days and it all comes down to getting better quality sleep in my sleep number bed. I'm sleeping great at a sleep number 30, while on the other side of the bed, my husband likes his side a little firmer at a 40. And my quality of sleep is way up. Last night it was actually an 85%. My perfect sleep number is a 30, but I occasionally dip down to a 25 for a softer and fluffier experience. I always wake up feeling like I got the best night of sleep, and my sleep IQ score of 87 confirms that I am sleeping better than ever. Discover special offers now for a limited time at your local Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com slash moms. Sleep Number, proven quality sleep is life-changing sleep. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. I started my journey with therapy when I was still a teenager. I still remember my first appointment with a counselor and what a game changer it was for me. But back in those days, I had to call an actual person to schedule and then drive to their office, wait in a lobby, and then meet face-to-face -face with the therapist. Thanks to BetterHelp, I can still get all the benefits of therapy without ever having to leave the house. BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. When you sign up for BetterHelp, you answer a few questions, and based on your answers, you're given the option of several therapists that might be a good fit for you. You can look through their bios and even their reviews to find out who would be a good match, and then you can get started right away. Whether you deal with stress, depression, anxiety, or more, BetterHelp can connect you with someone who can talk to you about what you're going through. With BetterHelp, I can even write my therapist during the week if there's something I want to remember to talk to her about the next time we speak. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, and Moms and Murder listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com moms. 
That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash moms. And now back to the episode. So before the break, we had introduced Peter Madsen, and he was the guy from Denmark who made the largest submarine by himself on his own. And got into it. That's the crazy thing. You can make something all day long, but if you get into it, wow. (laughs) And this was, of course, after he didn't even complete college because he decided he knew enough to do this. Do anything. Yeah, exactly. We also have introduced Kim Wall, who was a journalist, very well-known, very highly respected in the journalism community. She did a lot of work for some really big publications that we have all read stories from. And she was looking to get a story from Peter. So he invited her to go out on a submarine and she thought it would be a great opportunity. So before we went to the break, they had gotten on the submarine and taken off. And now neither one of them has returned that night. The next morning, about 30 miles south of Copenhagen, a lighthouse spotted the submarine in Coge Bay and alerted authorities and sent a rescue helicopter to fly over the area. The helicopter tried to radio Peter, but got no answer. Within seconds, it became clear to the pilot that the submarine was actually sinking, and Peter actually was seen swimming to a nearby boat that took him to a harbor where he was greeted by reporters. Peter started saying that he had been trying to fix a ballast tank when the ship started sinking, but he said that everything was fine. He was just really sad that his ship had sunk. Of course, everything was not fine. The submarine had just sunk to the bottom of the bay and Kim Wall was nowhere to be found. And now Peter was acting like she was never even on the ship to begin with. Officers immediately escorted him away to the police station so they could ask him what was going on and where Kim was, while a team of experts worked to recover the submarine and tow it to shore. The first of several stories that Peter gave was that he dropped Kim off near a restaurant at about 10.30 the night before, and he hadn't seen her since. Obviously, the investigators didn't believe this story, but they still went to the restaurant to scope things out and to see if they could look over any CCTV footage. There was no sign of Kim on these tapes. At this point, Peter was under great suspicion, and he was charged with involuntary manslaughter for, quote, having killed Kim in an unknown way and in an unknown place. So right off the bat, they're thinking – they're really going all the way. They're thinking like, you killed her. They're not just saying, you know, we just don't know where she is. She's missing. They're right away thinking Peter has done something really, really terrible to this woman. Yeah. To not have a body and to already have that, that's, that's a big deal. Right. So the following day, August the 12th, investigators talked to Peter again, and this time he gave them a different story. He said there had actually been an accident, and Kim had been hit over the head with a very heavy hatch that weighed 154 pounds. So he said after this happened, he threw her overboard into the bay. He said that he sunk the submarine intentionally, not because he was trying to cover up a murder, but because he didn't think that anyone would ever want to sail in the submarine again. Which is also possibly true, but that doesn't make any sense why he would do that on something that he's built and over an accident. Exactly. So naturally, nobody believed this story either. And Peter was remanded in custody for negligent manslaughter. So to be remanded in custody means that you are not allowed to leave jail. You don't get out on bail. You have to stay in jail until your trial. Meanwhile, authorities had managed to get the submarine to a location where they could inspect it thoroughly. There was no sign of Kim on board the vessel, but they did find obvious signs of blood inside. 
evidence suggested that the submarine had been sunk purposely as well. Several boats in the area were looking for the submarine when it was finally spotted, and one boater said that when he had first spotted the submarine, Peter was in the tower, and then he saw him go back down the hatch before coming back up as the submarine was sinking. So there's kind of some theory there. Maybe he had gone out onto the tower to make sure there was a nearby boat that he could swim to, you know, after he sunk the boat. Who knows what he was doing out there, but this is what a witness on another boat saw right before the submarine sank. This case was pretty baffling. Both Peter and Kim had recognizable names, and it was no secret that they were going out together on the submarine that night. Peter and Kim hardly even knew each other, so it didn't make much sense why Peter would do anything to hurt her. But yet, all signs were pointing to just that. Over a week passed and police hadn't found any new leads or evidence, but that all changed on August 21st when dismembered human remains washed up on the shores of Copenhagen. A torso without a head was found with a piece of metal piping attached to it, presumably to make it sink. The torso had 15 stab wounds, 14 of which were in the genital area and one in the rib cage. The medical examiner determined that these wounds were inflicted while the victim was still alive or very shortly after her death. There was no trace of anyone else's DNA on the body. Tragically, investigators confirmed that the torso was Kim Walls. Peter was charged with negligent manslaughter in particularly aggravating circumstances and indecent handling of a corpse. Despite the mounting evidence that Peter had committed an unthinkable and brutal act, he continued to insist that Kim had died in an accident. His attorneys went so far as to say that Peter was very relieved when Kim's torso was found because Peter wanted nothing more than for this whole thing to be cleared up. What? On September 5th, Peter explained how Kim was hit on the head with a 70 kilo, about 154 pounds, um, this heavy hatch. He said they were both climbing to the deck of the submarine and that he'd gone up first. He stands on the top and he's holding this hatch open. He said he then loses his footing and the hatch hits her in the head. He said he then heard a loud thud as she fell down the submarine floor. When he looked down, he sees her bleeding from a fractured skull. He said, quote, it was a terrible accident, a disaster. No doctor could have done anything, end quote, which I love when people are like, oh, I didn't try CPR because they were dead or, you know, like nobody could save them. How do you know? How do you know? Right. I don't know. That always gets me fired up, clearly. So Peter goes back down into the submarine and he said, quote, Kim was severely injured. There was a pool of blood where she landed. I touched her neck, but she had no pulse, end quote. Peter also said that he felt, quote unquote, suicidal, and he wanted to bury her at sea. So he attached a metal weight around her waist so that she would sink. Then he planned to sink his submarine, taking his own life. He said, quote, in my shock, I thought it was the right thing to do. I didn't want a dead body in my submarine. I put a rope around her feet to drag her out. I thought a fitting end for Peter Madsen would be on board the Nautilus. I decided I couldn't continue the life I had been living, end quote. When asked why Kim's body was found with no head or limbs, Peter said he had no idea. She was in one piece the last time he saw her. When asked if he ever had a saw on board the submarine, he said he had in the past, but there wasn't one there on August 10th. At the end of this hearing, the judge ruled that Peter be mentally evaluated and that the officers examine his computer as well. The mental evaluation showed that Peter appeared highly unreliable. It was hard to really get any insight into his mind, but it appeared that Peter was a sexual deviant. 
Peter described his own sexuality as being open and experimental, but the prosecution called it perverse. There was no sign of any psychotic traits, but it was noted that his charm was superficial and that he was severely lacking empathy, remorse, and guilt. At the same time, however, he was very gifted and he had a very big self-esteem. The examiner for this evaluation said that Peter was not a risk to other people, but other experts disagreed and believe that the risk of recurrence of a similar crime was pretty high. I kind of find it a little mind-blowing that anyone found that he wouldn't be a risk to other people. Right. Like this is a one-and-done situation. Right. And because it was just so random, it was like, well, how could you not think that he would do, be willing to do this again? Right. You know, it's not it's even not like a crime it was, of passion. Right. Exactly. He didn't even know this woman. He invited her on board and this happened. And it's like, that's, I don't know how you could get any, I don't know how you could see any other way that he would be wanting to do this again. Obviously, he right. thought about it long enough to do it one time. So I just think it's crazy that anybody would try and say like that he wasn't a risk. And that's like scary to me too, that you have like professionals who will say that people who are have done something like this are not a risk. And it's like, what do you yeah. mean? Another court hearing was held on October the 3rd to go over what was found on Peter's computer. And the investigators really got a lot more than they bargained for there. The contents of the computer revealed Peter's darkest interests. Videos containing footage of the torture and execution of women were found, and it was learned that he had searched over 5,000 different websites specifically looking for this type of content. His search history was just as disturbing, with things like how to impale women to death and husband stabs ex-wife with machete coming up in the recent searches. Peter explained this content away by saying that other people actually had access to his computer and that the videos on there weren't even his. But there was even more incriminating evidence found against Peter. They found out that in the days leading up to the murder, he packed the submarine with several items, including a boiler suit, pipes, a saw, straps, zip ties, and sharpened screwdrivers that looked like spears. He also contacted a number of different women to go out on the submarine with him, but everybody said no. A woman that we're going to call Sarah for this story said that she was out walking with a friend when they passed Peter talking to some tourist about his submarine, and they got involved in the conversation as well. And so Peter then invited Sarah and her friend to come on the submarine with him, and she actually gave Peter her phone number. Soon after, Peter ended up adding both of these women on social media and sent them a picture of the submarine and told them that he was planning a trip out soon and he invited them to join. They ended up not going, and by the end of May, they barely even spoke to Peter anymore at all. And then for the whole entire month of June, they didn't have any contact. Keep in mind, they just met on the street. It was just like one of those, like, hey, we exchanged numbers. So not really that crazy that they wouldn't be speaking to each other, you know, a couple of months later. But then several weeks later, on July the 26th, completely out of the blue, Peter called up this woman, Sarah. And she, of course, thought it was really strange that he was calling her. And she felt weird about it. So she just didn't take the call, which, girl, same. I would just be like, why is that weird guy calling me? Like, you know, like all this time later. I would honestly think it was like a butt dial. I'd be like, there's no way. Like that this is a real phone call. Sarah then got a text from Peter over a week later, after this phone call incident on August the 8th, and the text message said, Hi, Sarah, do you remember the submarine? I want to take a small trip. Do you not want to join? That is so creepy. Yeah, but... I mean, it is. You know I'm not answering anybody on this. 
But um, yeah, to be a, a somebody that you don't know, you've spent no time with them, the last thing I'm going to do is get into a submarine for you. Whereas for Kim, it's a totally different thing. Like this is, she's a journalist doing this story. It makes sense why she would. Right, exactly. But somebody else, it, it just, oh, he just upsets me so much. Me too. So this time, Peter only wrote the message to Sarah instead of to this group message that he had been communicating with her and her friend in in the past. And so this raised even more suspicion and red flags for Sarah. And she just wrote him back and, you know, thanked him for the offer and said they couldn't make it. And then she moved on with her life. At some point, Peter moved on and decided to invite Kim Wall onto the submarine under the guise of giving her this interview that she had been wanting for her story. And since Kim was about to move to China and she had already put so much time into working on the story, she jumped at the opportunity to get this interview. She was completely unaware of what Peter really had planned for that night. Kim's final autopsy revealed that her arms, legs, and head had been cut from her body with a saw after she died. It wasn't clear exactly how Kim died. Either her throat had been cut or she had been suffocated, but her death was ruled a definite homicide. Further forensic testing of Peter's fingernail scrapings showed the presence of Kim's DNA. Her blood was found on Peter's nostrils, his hand and neck, and there were fresh scratch marks under his arms. Bone fragments and muscle tissue belonging to Kim were found on one of Peter's boiler suits. Just three days after a judge heard the results of the final autopsy on Kim's torso, a team of divers found Kim's leg not very far from where the torso had been recovered. They also found Kim's head in a bag that had been weighed down by pieces of metal. In a separate bag weighed down with lead weights, they found Kim's clothes and a knife. Kim's underwear, which were recovered from Peter after his arrest, were found to have traces of semen on them. An autopsy of the head showed no damage to Kim's skull, which proved that the story about Kim being hit in the head with a hatch was not true. On October 30th, Peter changes his story again when he's interviewed with police. So he continues to maintain that Kim's death was an accident and not a murder, but he now changes the story on how she actually died. Since her skull had no damage, he tried to say that she actually died from carbon monoxide poisoning inside the submarine while he was up on the deck. His official story was that he was out on the deck when the air pressure on board suddenly plummeted. He said Kim was in the engine room while filled with exhaust fumes and that he tried to get back in but couldn't because of the way the submarine was built. The hatch would get sucked closed. He said he yelled for Kim to shut off the engine, but it was about 10 to 15 minutes before he managed to open the hatch and found Kim lifeless on the floor. After allegedly trying to wake her up, Peter said he realized she was dead and that he had to get her off of his submarine. But he tried for an hour to move her and he couldn't, so he said he had to cut up her body. He even had the audacity to say that he didn't tell the police this at first because he was trying to spare Kim's relatives the pain of knowing how she died. Oh the my goal gosh. Of this. I hate when people say that kind of thing too. Whenever you hear a story, that's not the first time we've heard that where they're like, oh, I just didn't want her family to go through it. It's like, I really? cared so much. Right. Yeah. Ugh. It's the whole hero complex and, and this kind of thing. So Peter claimed that Kim was locked inside for five or 10 minutes, but definitely not as much as 40. So for what it's worth here, a scientist later testified that the carbon monoxide story was plausible, but not likely. There was no other evidence to suggest that anything like what Peter described actually happened. There was no CO2 present in the submarine, nor exhaust fumes in the filters, and there was no exhaust gas found in Kim's lungs. And we still have more to get into after one last break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. 
With no fees or minimums, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions, even easier than deciding to listen to another episode of your favorite podcast. And with no overdraft fees, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank. Capital One N.A. Member FDIC. In my very short time on this earth, one thing I've always struggled with is my relationship with food. I spent years of looking at pizza like it's bad and broccoli like it's good. Thanks to Noom, I've learned that food is just that. It's food. There's no need to label it because Noom doesn't believe in restricting what you can have or what you can't. In actuality, Noom is designed to give you the knowledge to help you make informed choices that not only fit your lifestyle, but to also help you reach your goals. If you're looking to make some changes in how you relate to food, check out Noom. Noom isn't a restrictive way of eating, but rather a way to help you learn why you eat the way you eat and how to make those changes that can be hard. But with Noom, you can feel prepared. One of my favorite features of the app is the daily lessons. I feel like so much of what I still think about food comes from the food pyramid that we all learned as kids. And quite honestly, that thing has been debunked. Noom works to teach me real things and how to make the best choices for myself and my body without judgment or stress. My goal with Noom is just to feel better. When I'm eating better, I feel better. And while it sounds simple, when I fall off the wagon, it's hard to get back on. And that's why I really love Noom. When I fall off, not if, they're there to encourage me to keep going. I love that Noom fits into my life and not the other way around. I spend an average of about five or 10 minutes on the app a day, and that's it. It's perfect for me and my goals. Sign up for your trial and get psychology-based support and motivation to reach your goals at noom.com slash moms. That's noom.com slash moms to sign up for your trial. It's been a while since I've had a baby of my own, and some days I miss it so much. The baby cuddles and baby smiles, but when it comes to diaper rashes, not so much. I remember the first time my oldest had a diaper rash, I was really devastated. Here's this tiny thing totally dependent on me, and now she's fussy and obviously uncomfortable, and I'm supposed to have the answers. Well, with time and treatment, it went away, but what I really wanted was to avoid it altogether. And now, baby butts rejoice. New Huggies Skin Essentials are here, a brand new dermatologist-approved line of diapers, wipes, and pull-ups training pants, all designed with baby's sensitive skin in mind. The wipes are thick and have zero harsh ingredients for a great gentle clean. Pull-Up Skin Essentials has got your big kid covered too, with a training pant that's ultra soft and breathable to help protect sensitive skin throughout potty training. Whether you're a first-time parent or a seasoned pro, make it easy on yourself and your baby with Huggies. Learn more at Huggies.com. Once again, head to Huggies.com to learn more. And now back to the episode. So before the break, we were just kind of talking about the different stories that Peter has given to the police about what exactly happened on his submarine to um, the journalist Kim Wall. In November, both of Kim's arms were recovered from Coach Bay. One of her arms was found on the 21st and the other was found on the 29th. Both had been weighted down with strips and pieces of metal. All of Kim's body parts were officially located at this point. Jens Jensen from the Copenhagen police told the media that it was of great significance to Kim's family that they be able to bury her whole body. Marks found on Kim's wrists matched a ratchet buckle that was found on the submarine. On January 16th, 2018, Peter was charged with killing Kim after prior planning and preparation, and he was also charged with sexual assault without intercourse of, quote, a particularly dangerous nature. 
The prosecutor stated that this case was unusual and extremely serious. Therefore, he requested that Peter be sentenced to an indefinite life sentence, saying that he was essentially too dangerous to ever be released. So just for perspective and for a little bit of reference here, the minimum sentence for murder in Denmark is actually 12 years. And if the motive is sexual, it's a minimum of 16 years. So an indefinite life sentence would be a pretty serious thing to be given in this country. On March 8th, 2018, Peter's trial began in Copenhagen City Court. A three-judge panel would decide his fate. Every night, people would line up super early, sometimes before midnight, just to get seats in the courtroom for the following day, and they were doing that because there were only four reserved seats in the courtroom for the public, which can you imagine, like, trying to get one of four seats in a courtroom? No. I wouldn't even bother. Like, as soon as I found out there was only four seats, I would be like, well, I'm definitely not going to be Mm -mm, one. I don't have that kind of Like, I just – no, no. Or that kind of drive to, like, make myself (laughs) (laughs) Bad luck and uh, bad self-esteem. The combination of the two. (laughs) It really, really holds me It gets me every time. Yeah. (laughs) So the first time that Peter got on the stand, he said, quote, there's nothing worse that could happen to a person like me. The moment Kim Wall died, there was nothing left for me to fight for, end quote. The prosecution said that Peter tied Kim up and then sexually tortured her to fulfill this violent sexual fantasy that he had, and then he either strangled her or beheaded her. The prosecution said that every single time there was new evidence, he came up with another lie to save himself. They played more than 140 clips of cruel execution videos, and the judges had to watch them while the audience just had to listen. One of the videos they showed was watched the night before Peter killed Kim. He actually had searched his computer for beheading and girl, and then he watched a video of a woman getting her throat slit. Oh my gosh. Very disturbing. Yeah. Peter's girlfriend um, testified as well about conversations that she had with Peter in regards to sex. She said that they had talked twice about girls in relation to death, but that she didn't think that Peter was actually sexually um, aroused by this topic. She said she felt that he was just really fascinated with death. She said Peter once told her about this idea for what he was saying was the most uncomfortable way to die. And this is Peter from Peter's own brain. What he came up with for the most uncomfortable way to die would be, quote, you had to be locked inside a large tube with pink plush. Then the tube had to roll so you could not fall asleep and you had to die from lack of sleep, end quote. What? Where did – who comes? How would you come up with this? I would say going down a slide with a razor into a pool of alcohol because I feel like we've all run into those. <laughs> I would never be able to come up with something like that. That is wild and very yeah, tough. yeah. But this girlfriend also said that Peter had these sexual fantasies that were just getting more and more wild and more and more extreme, and that towards the end, you know, right before this happened with Kim Wall. Peter's fantasies um, and everything was kind of spiraling out of control. She said that it was all manic right at the end all the time. The defense said the prosecution had not proven its case. They said, quote, the prosecutor has not had a single piece of solid evidence. Kim Wall has not died as a result of an intentional act. The prosecutor has presented a story. We can call it a horror story. It does not build on evidence. It is based solely on assumptions, end quote. While he was on the stand, Peter was asked about how and why he dismembered Kim's body. 
He said he wanted to throw her body into the sea, but he wasn't able to. He said he'd spent an hour trying to. He said it was a, quote, very, very traumatic event, which I do not want to describe, end quote. The prosecution asked Peter which body part he cut off first. He wanted to know why they wanted to know that, and they said that it did matter. The prosecution asked Peter, quote, can you give a reasonable explanation as to why it was necessary to cut off the head to get the body out of the submarine? I do not understand it, end quote. Peter replied, I do not either. He couldn't explain why it was necessary to cut off the parts to get her out of the submarine. The prosecution asked why he put strips of metal and pipes on her arms and legs to make her sink. Peter said, quote, it was not a situation I had imagined. The intention was that it should disappear. Her relatives did not benefit from it coming to light. She should not reappear, end quote. The prosecution brought up the sexual assault charges against Peter asking, quote, did you do anything sexual with her, end quote. Peter replied, how could you even ask about that? And the prosecutor asked him if he was into necrophilia, and Peter said no. Which, after all of this, I feel like it's a really good question to have asked him. A valid question, yeah. yeah. So when the prosecution asked Peter if he'd seen any of the videos stored on his computer, he said, quote, we know I've seen some horror movies and some cartoons. It's about all these things. I cannot distinguish them from each other. It may well be something I've seen. It may well be something I have stored, but it can also be something else, end quote. Uh, can I just say I hate people who talk like this and who like talk in circles like this? This is Johnny Depp 101. Johnny Depp like, trial What are you even saying? Yeah, like what are you even saying here? I don't get it. I know. It, it, yeah, I don't either. It's, it's tough to follow. And he told the prosecutor, quote, you want to show that I had a years-long interest in these things. My answer is this. My interest in everything has arisen very early in my life. These things are a subset of everything. Almost no matter what I was accused of, you would know something that fit. I am a person with very broad interest, end quote. This isn't a dating profile. This is like <laughs> these horrific things that actually match. It's not like they're like, well, he was into cats, therefore he did this. No, right. it's like... He rough videos and just terrible things that absolutely go hand in hand with what he's being accused of doing. For sure. So the prosecution asked Peter if Kim was still alive when he texted his wife at 11.25 p.m., quote, I'm on a little adventure with Nautilus, feeling good, end quote. Peter responded, quote, you know that well. The situation was that Kim Wall was dead, end quote. Peter said he sent the text because he didn't know what to do and his wife would be expecting him home. So they asked him how it was possible for him to have sent off this loving text message to his wife, but not have the wherewithal to call for help. So yeah, it's like you are planning ahead. You've got to cover your bases at home, but you are too distraught to actually call for help when this quote unquote accident happened. And so right. Peter said, quote, you have to understand my situation and quote. And the prosecutor responded, quote, I honestly have a hard time understanding that end quote, which kudos to the prosecutor because neither do we. So in their closing arguments, the prosecution argued that Peter should be sentenced to life in prison. They said that he, quote, is well aware that it is unusual to be sentenced to life in prison for murder in the case of one murder, and the murder defendant has not previously been convicted of a crime, but this case is devoid of mitigating circumstances. While both sides had made their final arguments, Peter was allowed to have the last word. He looked directly at Kim's parents and said, the only thing I want to say is that I'm really, really sad about what happened. Another source translated his quote as being very, very sorry. So as we said, there was some there is some translations for these quotes, but basically he's saying the same thing. He's very sad. He's very sorry. 
I don't believe either one of those words. So to me, it doesn't really matter what it translates to. I don't believe it anyway. On October the 25th, the three-judge panel found Peter guilty of murder, sexual abuse, and indecent treatment of a corpse. They ended up finding that the murder was cynical and planned, and Peter was sentenced to life, which was the country's most severe punishment, as we said before. Peter appealed his sentence, but not his conviction. He wanted his sentence to be commuted, and he still maintained his innocence, but he didn't want to go through another trial. The prosecution argued that Peter should remain behind bars forever. They said, quote, there are so many aggravating and disturbing circumstances in this case that it's difficult to find words. When I look at Peter Madsen, I cannot think of a punishment that is too harsh, end quote. The prosecutor ended his arguments saying, we have here a cynical, perverted, and calculating sex killer. The only thing right is life imprisonment. The defense said that Peter's sentence was, quote, completely skewed. We are eroding the use of life imprisonment, end quote. They said that the prosecution used colorful, poetic language to make Peter's crimes seem worse. There's not any way that you can make dismemberment seem any worse no, than no, it no. is. No, no, no. Just that word. It's, right. Exactly. So the defense, though, they said, quote, all killings are cynical. Taking another person's life is one of the most cynical things you as a human being can commit. The defense said the right sentence, when compared to other first-time murders, was actually somewhere between 14 to 16 years and that life was just too much. During the appeal hearings, Peter was allowed to have family members in the courtroom. Danish Broadcasting Corporation reported that one of Peter Madsen's relatives, this was a woman that Peter Madsen had come into contact with when he was in prison. Uh, she was a prison officer. Apparently, they had some kind of little relationship, and now she was no longer employed by this Danish prison and probation service. The high court affirmed Peter's life sentence, stating, quote, according to the district court's assessments of the evidence, it must be assumed that this is a case of unusual seriousness and that there are aggravating circumstances to a very special degree, as the crime was specially planned in detail, just as the accused had shown special ruthlessness in the mutilation of the injury party and has also exploited the defenseless position of the injured party. Therefore, and for the reasons stated by the district court, the district court agrees that the defendant be sentenced to life imprisonment, end quote. Both Peter and his attorney were surprised by this decision. The attorney told the media that Peter felt he'd been convicted by the media before he ever went to trial. The attorney said that they would consider taking the case to the Supreme Court. In September of 2020, Discovery Network's Denmark released a documentary series about Peter entitled Secret Recordings. Christian Lenneman spoke with Peter on the phone for more than 20 hours, which he recorded. During one of their conversations, Peter admitted to killing Kim. Peter told Christian, quote, it was nobody else's fault. It's my fault she died. And it's my fault because I committed the crime. It's all my fault, end quote. Peter had finally admitted to killing Kim, but sadly, he didn't ever explain why or how. On October 20th, 2020, Peter escaped from prison after threatening a prison employee with a pistol-like object. He fled as prison staff followed. Within a few minutes, he was surrounded by police on a residential street a few hundred meters from the prison. As officers approached, Peter threw away the pistol-like object. Then, police saw a belt around Peter's waist. Thinking it may be a bomb, they brought in a bomb disposal robot, and an hour and a half later, Peter was taken into custody. Kim's mom, Ingrid, told TT Newswire that shortly after Kim's torso was found, she woke in the middle of the night with two thoughts in her head. She said, quote, one is that Kim should live on through a fund. She should not be forgotten. The second is that a book, the true story, must be written. 
Kim should be presented as the engaged and strong-willed woman she was, as the person and journalist Kim Wall, not as the victim, end quote. Ingrid was able to accomplish both. Kim's parents created the Kim Wall Memorial Fund Grant, which would be awarded to a, quote, young female journalist who wants to work in Kim's spirit. According to the fund's website, they've handed out at least nine grants so far. This is just one of at least five awards or grants that are awarded in Kim's honor. In the fall of 2018, Kim's parents released the book, which they co-wrote together. It's called The Book of Kim Wall, When Words End. Everyone who knew Kim wants the world to remember her for her work and not for being the Swedish journalist who was horrifically murdered on a submarine. Do you remember this story, Mandy, like when it came out a few years ago? No, actually, I don't. Um, I was kind of surprised I had never heard of this one just because of how well-known Kim Wall was. But no, I had never heard of this one. And I was also surprised because I feel like the submarine thing is something that I would have Yeah, I very much remember the picture of her. She has like long red hair and I think it's a black background, black shirt. She has a very just like straight face, beautiful. But just that picture of her, I just remember seeing over and over and over again. And to this day, I do not know what he looks like and I have no interest in seeing him. But I think it's incredible what her family has done and and how important her work was to her. And just, you, I don't know. I feel like I learned a lot about about her story yeah. and the research of this that I just didn't know before. Because you do hear, oh, the submarine, you know, the girl that was killed in a submarine. Like something that piques your interest. Right. But to know more about her, I'm, I'm really glad we got to learn more about her. Yeah. Okay, Melissa, um, we are going to turn the page and move on to our last thing before we go for the week. I'm not even really sure what we're doing exactly. Oh, I know I have a few fun facts in front of me, but hopefully I know. they're fun enough. So <laughs> we, sometimes, you know, we're tired. We do this every week. Sometimes they're good ideas. Sometimes they're just right. ideas. <laughs> yeah. We're really reaching. Yeah. This is reaching. So submarines, two different things. Some are vehicles. Vehicles is a fun way to put it. And some are sandwiches. So Mandy and I put together fun facts about sub- submarine sandwiches. My favorite. And submarines. <laughs> and we're going to give each other a little quiz. So I think, right? That's kind of what we're doing Yeah, here. sort of. Okay, perfect. <laughs> Do you want to ask your first question or you want me to ask? Why don't you go first? Okay. Mandy, what is the furthest a submarine dive has actually completed? Is it 3,585 feet? 35,858 feet or 358,588 feet? No, I'm going to go with option B. B? Perfect. Yes, 35,858 feet. Nice. That's wild. I quite honestly did not know that you could go that far ever. Like I didn't know uh, that the ocean went that deep. Myself. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know anything went that deep. Yeah. So Honestly, um, it is crazy when you think about like the depth of the ocean being – you want to tell is. me what that is? Because I don't know that don't. one either. <laughs> I don't. Oh, goodness. So, yeah, it's it's something. Okay, Mandy, what you got? Okay, so I am on sub sandwiches. And we obviously know that they're called sub sandwiches. But, Melissa, what are – I want to see how many other sub sandwich names. What are they also known as in other places? Do you know other oh. names for sub sandwiches? Um, uh, it's not a hero. Gyro. Yep. Hero is, is one. Hero. Okay, hero. Yes, but actual hero, like H-E-R-O, is okay. a sub, and then you have hero with a G that's a Greek, and it's not a sub, but it's still freaking delicious. And I freaking thought they were the one and the same. So They're um, not. <laughs> uh, I mean, Seb 
Yeah, that's all I would know. A hero is the only other thing I would know. So you've probably also heard of Hoagie. Hoagie, yes. You're right. Okay. And have you heard them called Grinder? Um, not on this <laughs> podcast. I have not. <laughs> <laughs> so that is another word for them. And um, I don't use that one. Um, so there was another one that I was kind of interested in. I've never heard before, but apparently in certain counties in New York, they call it a wedge. And that's because I guess when they cut a sub sandwich, like a foot long sandwich in half, like diagonally, it, uh-huh. like each piece is a wedge. Okay. Or they think it is anyway. So they, they call the sandwich a wedge. But the most interesting one that I found was what they call it in Boston. And it's actually a word that is short for an Italian word that means long roll. But in Boston, if you want to get a sub sandwich, you can call it a spucky. <laughs> a spucky? Yeah. Isn't that funny? I think I'd rather a spucky than a grinder, but it's if a very close Boston, call there. Let us know if you call it a spucky and if it really is the same thing as a sub sandwich or if Google has once again led me astray and made me look like an idiot on my own podcast. <laughs> <laughs> you got yourself on Urban Dictionary again. I think it's something different. <laughs> All right, Melissa. Next right, one. Next one. How long can submarines stay underwater? 25 days, 25 months, or 25 years? <laughs> I'm going to say 25 days. It has to come up and get fuel, right? Like, I mean, okay, so I don't know the answer to that exactly. <laughs> but here's what I can tell you. These Navy subs that are powered by nuclear power can stay under 25 years. But the reality is food only lasts for 90 days, so they only stay under about three months typically. But they could stay under 25 years. All right. That's terrifying. I want a Netflix series about a kid that's born on a submarine and how he grows up kind of like somebody born like to a family of wolves or like left to be raised by wolves and they're raised in a submarine. What's your life like if you're raised in a submarine? It can't be great. TM, TM, TM. I'm taking that idea. I'm selling it to Netflix. (laughs) Goodbye. It can't be that great. (laughs) Okay. It's not very dramatic. It's like he just doesn't know anything. So, Melissa, we're going back to the grinder here. Um, (laughs) What do you think, or maybe you know already, where did the sub sandwich really get its big debut? Um, In New York. In the delicatessen. In New York. Okay, but do you know why? Okay, I did not give you any two-part questions. (laughs) (laughs) I don't have an answer, no. Okay. So according to this story that is, I guess, I don't know if it, what do they call them when it's a story? A fable? Not a fable. What do they call it? A folklore? Keep going. I'm tale, not even going to try to help tale. you. I just want to see how many things do. <laughs> I don't know. So whatever um, this story is, the sandwich itself was invented by an Italian shopkeeper named Benedetto Capaldo in New London. But it was originally known as a grinder, as we said before. And then once the sub yard where actual submarines were being <gasps> built, um, the people who worked there started ordering 500 sandwiches a day from this guy to feed their workers. And so the sandwich became irrevocably associated with submersible ships. And that's why they're called submarine sandwiches. I truly had no idea on that one. That is wow we actually well, I, I was okay. happy to see that i could actually tie it all in to submarines thank you. somehow so thank you yeah, yeah. wasn't expecting that yeah. to happen okay <laughs> during world war ii which cult leader once led a 68 hour battle against two japanese submarines which he claimed definitely sunk an analysis later concluded that there were never any submarines in the area so he claimed this in world war ii was it l ron hubbard 
Scientology, Jim Jones, Jonestown, or Marshall Applewhite from Heaven's Gate? Um, let's say Jim Jones. It was not Jim Jones. It was L. Ron Hubbard. He had like a really weird relationship what? with warning like submarine and I don't know. Some of the stuff I've read about him is wild, but I think he was in the Navy. Yeah. Oh, well, there you know. go. Okay, Melissa, just to wrap things up here at the end, um, I think we've actually talked about this before, but we know that where we are from, the lovely, wonderful state of Florida, we have the world's best grocery store. Publix. That I can pretty much not even afford to shop I at know. because food is so expensive and Publix is now out of my price range. <laughs> but I know. I love Publix so much. And one of my favorite things to get from there, obviously, is subs. And Melissa, subs are one of the things that you and I both enjoy eating. I feel yes. like there's not a lot of foods that we um, come together on, but subs are something that we both enjoy. So, Melissa, what is your pub sub to uh, standard to um, order that you oh, do? Man, this is just humiliating for me. Okay. So my dream sub is a Publix turkey. I don't even do boar's head because it's too expensive. Publix turkey on white with mayonnaise, mustard, regular mustard. Um, bell peppers, banana peppers, oil, vinegar, salt, and pepper. Keep your shredded lettuce off my sub. Okay, I think we basically eat kind of the same thing, except I'm all about the Ugh. shredded lettuce. But yeah, I do turkey too, and definitely not boar's head, just the whatever Publix brand is good enough for me. It's good. I don't need boar's head. Boar's yeah. head's good, but I don't I don't need yeah, it. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> um, so yeah, I do the same thing. I do turkey and provolone cheese, mayonnaise, regular mustard, basically everything you said. I like every single thing on top of mine. I love green peppers, onions, pickles, banana peppers, but I like shredded lettuce Mm-mm. also. It just falls out and gets messy. I don't eat tomatoes on sandwiches, No, that's soggy. Though. Not a fan. It's, and it's gross. And then, like, they're not always good. Mm-hmm. And, like, sometimes they're really mushy and disgusting. Um, but, yeah, but I actually have different sub orders for different places that I oh, get me subs too. from. I don't get the same thing across the board. Different people. My uh, firehouse yeah. sub order, very different. But I love how both of us are like our favorite pub sub is a boring turkey sandwich I know, from Publix. And, and most people will be like, oh, chicken mm-mm. tender sub or like, you know, so one of the crazy ones. They always have some crazy ones like at, Moho at, um, pork and stuff. Like Thanksgiving, they have, yeah, or like they have the um, whole turkey dinner on a sub basically at um, Thanksgiving time. You know, the cranberry sauce and the stuffing and they put like all this stuff on, on a sandwich and it's delicious. But, um, None of those no. are my favorite. My favorite is just turkey. Mandy, I'm going <laughs> to end it with this. What's the only kind of submarine that cannot get wet? I don't know. This seems like a silly yeah, joke. Yeah, it's a submarine <laughs> sandwich. So we really did. We <laughs> both were able to wrap it up in a nice little bow, and we are done there with this. Go. Wow, we made it work. We did. We sure did. Once again, somehow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. That was it for this week. We will be back next week. Same time, same place, new story. Have a great week. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the Moms and Murder podcast. Make sure to check back with us next week for a new episode. You can also find us at momsandmurder.com where you can connect with us via social media. Please make sure you subscribe and give us five stars because giving us four stars would be a crime. Thanks so much.